You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Well, we're really lucky this week to have as our guest John Dewar, who's the Vice-Chancellor of the Trobe University in Melbourne and also the Chair of Universities Australia, so the, the head of our peak body. And he's joining us in a very interesting time for the higher education sector. The, the dust is settling on the Minister's speech at UA um, a couple of weeks ago, and we'll be talking with John about his reactions to that. There's been much speculation about what it means. And there's been the continued um, attempts to try and bring international students back. But really to have an an oversight on what the whole sector is thinking, to have one of our most experienced vice chancellors and to have someone that has the responsibility of of leading the Universities Australia group in its relationships with government and other bodies, what a great opportunity to hear from the leadership of the sector. Let's go straight to our interview with John. So our guest today on HEDEX is Professor John Dewar, who's led La Trobe University in Melbourne as its Vice-Chancellor for coming up to 10 years now, and after five years on the boards, has recently taken the helm in leading Universities Australia. John, welcome to HEDEX. Thank you, Martin. And John, leading both UA and La Trobe in times that I think are seen as many as being perhaps the toughest time they've ever been to be a VC at a major Australian university. It must be quite a responsibility. What, what, what do you see the, the biggest challenges that the sector as a whole is now facing in 2021? And, and how well do you feel the sector as a whole is doing in facing them? Well, obviously, the biggest challenge is the closure of international borders and the, the significant drop in international student numbers and, and obviously the revenue they bring. The impact of that, I think, has been uneven across the country. Um, some parts of the country have been worse affected. So here in Victoria, for example, we've seen a bigger drop in enrolments than uh, in, other, in other parts of Australia. Um, and then universities uh, have been differently affected according to how reliant they were on different countries. So universities that drew more students from China, for example, seem to be doing better um, than, than those who drew, drew more students from India or South Asia. Um, so it, it, its impact is, is uneven, but there's no doubt um, that everyone is facing a significant financial challenge for probably, um, you know, the next, at least the next three or four years, and maybe even longer. You know, it depends how quickly borders reopen. Um, but this is a, a, an event, if you, if you think of it in those terms, that could have a six to eight year impact. It's, it's really profound. It's a great tribute to the sector, though, I think, um, and the, the, the management of the universities um, that, for the most part, we've not yet seen any real any real disasters, and I don't think we will. Um, but you know, it, it's it's a tough time. There's 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 no question. Tough time, and maybe about to get a bit tougher still. I, I the minister's speech at the UA conference recently seemed to to back up the repeated calls for changed business models that he says are going to be needed with 
as we're widely expecting no new public money or not much anyway for our universities. What is your view of how well prepared we, we are as a sector to respond on to, to three of the issues that he seemed to focus on in his speech, switching firstly to more research commercialization, secondly, getting all of our students back on campuses as soon as possible, and then the one that I certainly didn't see coming, growing offshore and online international students to 10 million enrollments in 10 years' time. What did you make of that? Well, if, if I start um, with the first one, so I, I think universities are really up for the commercialization challenge. Um, and all of us engage in the translation of research uh, into, co into commercial or industrial hands in some level already. Um, but I just make, I think, two comments about this. The first is that I don't think it's going to prove to be uh, a solution to the significant drop in research funding that the sector will now experience, because in the past, in the before times, we did cross-subsidize our research from our international student revenue in, in large part. Um, so with the loss of that revenue, there is going to be a gap in our research funding, our research capability. Um, and I don't think research commercialization is going to be uh, able to close that gap. The, the second comment I'd make is that um, I sometimes get the feeling that universities are singled out as uniquely responsible for the, the lack or the, the, the claimed lack of um, uh, commercialization or knowledge transfer from universities to industry. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, I mean, the word ecosystem gets overused, but commercialization really does involve multiple parties, um, including government. Um, and um, it, all, of the, all of the components need to be aligned for this to work better than it does now, particularly, you know, what incentives are we offering um, in, industry partners to come and work with universities and commercialize their IP. Um, uh, and comparisons are often drawn between, you know, unfavorably between Australia and someone like Israel or C California. And the minister often says that he wants Australia to be more like California uh, or, or Israel. But we don't have a very deep pool of venture capital in Australia, unlike um, those countries or, or parts of the world. Um, and the Australian economy is very differently configured from, say, the Israeli or the Californian economy. Um, you know, the biggest sectors in our economy are in areas like, uh, well, obviously mining, financial and professional services. Um, now, they're not, they're not, uh, or property, property and construction, they're not sectors of the economy that uh, have a particularly strong track record of um, uh, working with universities and commercializing research. The sectors that do are areas like pharmaceuticals, IT, engineering, and yet Australia does not have big sectors in those, in those areas. So I think it's really important we have this debate. Um, I think you'd find every vice chancellor, every university would be completely up for the challenge of, of lifting our pace of commercialization. But as I say, it's a more complicated picture um, than just pointing the finger at universities. As far as uh, return to campus is concerned, I think everyone wants to get back to campus as quickly as possible. Um, but there are complexities 
um, which I don't think are often appreciated in the wider community. Um, universities are not like schools. We can't suddenly say everyone's back on campus. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. One is that um, our timetabling is exceptionally complex, as you would know, Martin, um, and takes literally weeks to put into place. Um, and it, it, it takes time to prepare for a large scale return to campus. And when we were planning first semester, certainly in Victoria, we were all in lockdown, let's not forget, and very uncertain about what the future held. So we had to be cautious in the way we planned for our teaching in first semester. Um, and it's very difficult to change that once the semester's actually started. The other thing I'd say is that we have very diverse cohorts of students. We have students offshore, for example. Um, we have students who cannot come onto campus for health reasons, and we, we have to cater to them. We can't ignore them and just say everyone's back on campus now. So it's a much more complicated picture than I think we is often uh, given credit. Um, but I have no doubt that every university now really within the constraints of health guidelines wants, wants to be back on campus. And as for the 10 million number, um, it's, a, it's a, a, a fantastic ambition. Um, uh, and I think it will require support from government, particularly in the regulatory space, um, to make sure that we can come anywhere close to achieving that. The, the one ob observation I'd make is that by going offshore, um, we do lose some of the distinctiveness of what Australian universities can offer. And we open ourselves up to global competition in a big way. Um, so we need to be very clear about what, what, what value do we offer as Australian universities, but teaching online globally. Um, and you know, I think we're all very conscious of the rapidly growing competition in the online space from universities around the world, from other non-university providers, it's gonna become a very, very competitive space. And yet the on-campus experience we can offer here in Australia is unique. Um, and we hope will continue to be sought after by international students. But uh, you know, I'm not against bold targets at all, um, but I think we have to be realistic about the things that need to be in place for us to get there. Yeah, and so we, I think we used to call them big, hairy, audacious goals, didn't we? That one <laughs> certainly right. had a, every sniff of that about it, didn't it? Um, and then at the end of, of Minister Tudge's speech, there, there was that um, what's been widely commented, commented on since, hint that maybe not all 39 Australian universities should focus equally on research and teaching and learning in the future. What's your read on what is meant by that and how that's going to play out for, for us all? Well, the, it, it, he actually didn't quite use those words, Martin. He talked about specialisation. Um, and that that's set a few hairs running um, uh, because it can mean a number of different things. It can mean um, specialisation of function, as you say, um, where you'd want to see the sector more uh, stratified according to some are more teaching focused, some more research focused, um, or it could mean specialization by discipline, um, or it could mean both or a mixture of the two. Um, I mean, I, I think there are arguments for disciplinary specialization. Um, uh, the, the debate about functional specialization 
is one that I think I thought had been had and settled with the Coldrake review of the provider standards. Um, so to be a university, you have to have uh, a, a minimum of, of research activity. So uh, unless the minister wants to reopen that, and it would be um, it, it would be very soon after the Coldrake review for him to be doing that, then the, the debate is really about disciplinary specialization. And you know, I think there is an argument to be had there um, about how do we ensure Australia remains globally competitive in a resource-constrained environment? Can we really afford a system in which um, every university tries to be good at everything? Now, in reality, that doesn't happen, of course. Most universities will have some kind of research strategy in place where they do try and uh, you know, invest in some areas over others. Um, but it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting proposition but in order to get there, I think the changes to our funding that would be required would be quite dramatic. Um, so for example, uh, you'd need to remove incentives in the system for cross subsidy, either between teaching and research or between different disciplines. Yes. Um, uh, you know, what, what's often called the university business model is as Duncan Maskell put it to me, is really just a response to the government's funding model and the government's funding model does not cover the full cost of research. Um, and that's why a lot of us are comprehensive universities because we have to spread our risk. We have to be able to cross subsidize, et cetera, et cetera. The way you're gonna remove that incentive to cross subsidize is by covering more of the cost of research. Um, but then of course that gets you into difficult territory because there's always you know, a fixed pot or maybe not a much bigger pot than there is at the moment for funding that research. So look, I, I think it, it, it's a, a, an interesting debate, um, whether it holds out a solution for a long, uh, whether it holds out a prospect of a long-term solution to the funding of research, research particularly in Australia, um, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what comes out of the commercialization review and whether that presages any significant reform to the way research more generally is funded. Um, and I, I think it would help if the minister himself um, was a bit more explicit about what he meant. <laughs> um, because at the moment, I think there's a lot of guessing going on, you know, what did he really mean? Um, and I think it would be helpful if, if, if he, he sort of clarified that. Well, there's one for us all to keep our eye on, I'm sure. But um, yeah. in, the, in the meantime, I wonder if I can bring our conversation back to a, a more local level for you in, in terms of what's happening at La Trobe. In that my, my vision of La Trobe from having visited your university and, and heard you talk about it a number of times is that um, you've made great strides, it seems to me, in conjunction with your state government, with different industry partners, in making a particular play in community and industry engagement in some focused areas of research that are combined with program provision. Is that what you mean by that, um, maybe a combination of that discipline and functional specialization and differentiation? Is that, a, is that a form of strategy play that you think will become more common and is well, well aligned to how we've described the policy settings might be changing? Well, obviously, yes, we think so, Martin. <laughs> I mean, we, we've had a long, hard think about, you know, what does it mean to be a relevant and valued university in the 21st century, particularly after COVID? Um, and, 
you know, we know that we have to focus on the things we do really well and not try and be all things to all people. Um, so we, we have a research strategy that, that identifies about five different areas where we want to be best in the world and also to be uh, really, really strong in our industry engagement. Um, now, a lot of universities will have similar strategies, but I think what makes it different for us is that it's also a place-based strategy as well. We have a very large campus in the north of Melbourne. Um, I claimed that it was the, the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere until Ian Martin told me that Deakin's Warren Ponds campus was even bigger. Um, but, um, you know, we've got 240 hectares. Um, we plan to use that in part to encourage um, industries that are aligned with our research strengths to come and co-locate with us. Um, we do have really strong state government support, as you've said. Um, the Victorian state government has been really good in, in trying to support universities through this difficult period. Um, so they've invested in uh, infrastructure and facilities in particular. In our case, they've invested in bio-innovation. We're going to be putting some wet labs into one of our older buildings, re re refurbish it, which will be there for small to medium-sized startups or enterprises um, who, who need flexibly configured um, uh, and easily rented um, lab space. Uh, we're going to be putting in a digital innovation hub in partnership with uh, Optus and Cisco. Um, and our sports park, when we, we sport and uh, health and well-being is one of our big areas of focus in teaching and research. Um, the state government's just invested over $100 million in a new facility for, for rugby and for football, particularly focusing on women's sport. So what we're trying to do is to use the, the physical real estate really to line up, to get behind our strengths in, in teaching and research. Um, we're still in the early days, um, and it's, but you know, I'm really pleased with the way it seems now uh, to be coming together in a very exciting way. We also have a regional footprint, and I think that makes us unusual. We have a, we're a big metro university, but we also have a big regional footprint. Um, and our strategy there is going to be slightly different um, because we know that what our regional communities need um, is close partnerships with TAFE, so that there are clearly signposted diploma to degree pathways, um, and that there are very specific needs for graduate skills in those regional areas, particularly in health, um, uh, education, social work, um, and small business and agribusiness. So we really tailor what we offer at our regional campuses um, to, to those local, um, local workforce needs. So we're a complex institution, but we take our notion of place really seriously but we allow that to shape our teaching profile, um, particularly in the regions and our research profile um, across the board. I think you used um, the expression uh, distinctively Australian experience a bit earlier in our conversation when we were talking about international students and how that market yes. might change. And you've just given a really rich picture of the particularly distinctively Latrobe and Victorian and Australian ex experience that might be encountered on your campuses. I wonder if I'd just come back to that comment of 10 million students online and offshore in 10 years time. 
If that's a market that you want to go for, how is going for it going to fit with that really place-based momentum that you've built up to date? Um, well, it wouldn't. In the, it would be a different kind of activity. But our approach to the online is, is to focus on the things that we believe we do absolutely best. Um, so our online presence, we want to reflect our strengths in our teaching and research. Um, so we, we're not going to try and be a comprehensive online university. Um, what we're going to do is to promote ourselves as the place you would come, if, particularly if you're interested in health, um, which is obviously a, a historic strength of Latrobe, um, some business disciplines, some IT disciplines, all of which are lined up with our teaching and research strengths. But our goal is really um, to build uh, reputation and strength nationally and globally in a relatively small number of areas. So I, I, I don't, it, uh, an online international experience um, is, is in no way going to be, you know, a pale replica of a, an on-campus experience. It's going to be much more focused um, and playing playing to those areas of strength. It's great to have you, have you um, sharing this um, conversation with us on HeadX, John, and just changing the subject a little bit. Our two most recent guests on, on the podcast have been Marcia Devlin talking about her new book on sexism in our universities, Beating the Odds, and someone that I know you know well, Lynn Bassetti, describing... Yes some of her research into how the phenomena of incivility as a form of smart bullying, as she describes it, by academics of their leaders. There's two issues there with regard to culture in our universities. And what do you make with, of, of where we're up to with regard to those particular two issues of culture in our universities in Australia? Oh, that's a really interesting question. And it's difficult for me to comment sector-wide, um, uh, except to say that... Um, Universities have, I think, been leaders in some respects um, in tackling issues such as um, sexual harassment um, on campus. And I think the, the initiative to launch the Respect Now Always survey um, a few years ago was, was really a leading, a leading move for the sector. Um, and we're about to repeat that survey. Um, uh, every university took that really seriously, um, has taken a, done a lot of work since the recommendations were made. Um, and we've displayed, I think, a real willingness to hold ourselves to account um, for the outcomes around that. So, you know, I, I think there are some really, really positive signs. Um, at Latrobe, we've done a lot of work <clears throat> on uh, promoting women into senior roles. Um, we've had, I think, good success. Um, um, you know, if you look at the proportion of men and women in what we define as a senior leadership role at the university, um, we're just about 50-50 now, which is where we set out to be about eight years ago. Um, but it's been a result of a lot of hard work um, and, you know, making sure that uh, women are supported in making promotion applications internally um, and making sure that when you're recruiting externally that you've got a good representation of women on, on the list. I think my, uh, my, my view, Martin, is that the next horizon for us in this space is, is culture and ethnicity. Um, 
I, I, I think that there is a risk of university still being a bit too white. Um, uh, and I think we need to become more representative of the communities we serve. And certainly here in the north of Melbourne, um, you know, it's a very, very diverse ethnic community. Um, so, you know, I, I think, well, we, we, we won't give up on, we'll take the foot off the accelerator on the gender uh, front. I think we need to do a lot more on the on the cultural diversity front. What about incivility? Is there any um, any evidence of that happening to academic <laughs> leaders at La Trobe? Where did where did um, Lynn get her inspiration from that from? I know she interviewed yeah. lots of deans and vice chancellors all around the world. But um, yeah. what do you think of her thoughts on that matter? Um, look, I, I'm afraid I haven't read Lynn's work on this. I've, I've seen it referred to. Um, I, I think academic leadership is the most challenging job you can do. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Um, because you're dealing with people who often don't accept your right to manage. They're incredibly smart. Um, and, you know, there, there are always arguments against a position that an academic leader puts. Um, I, I, I think we underestimate just how challenging academic leadership is. Um, and I think we, you know, I think every university, I'm sure, recognizes that and provides their academic leaders with heaps of support. Um, but I'm, I'm always in, in awe at the complexity of the issues and some of the personalities that our academic leaders have to, to deal with. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't downplay the, the issue that Lynn's identifying at all. Um, but I, I think we can, um, you know, do a lot to support our leaders in what is always a really challenging task. And I, I don't think people outside the university system really understand just how challenging academic management and leadership is. If you can do it in a university, I reckon you could do it pretty much anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to agree with you. Um, but I wonder if, um, just bringing this to a close then, all that we've discussed there, do you, do you think there's a big agenda for developing the culture of our workforces and our leadership in our universities to leave us well prepared for the future that we'll face in, in the way that we've described it in this conversation? I, I, I think, yes, I think there is. Um, you know, you, academic life, academic work has been changing very quickly and will continue to change. Um, so, you know, I, I think our staff will need constant reskilling, upskilling, um, and will need to be comfortable with doing things differently. I think last year was, uh, in that respect, a real eye-opener for a lot of people. And you know, suddenly, they were acquiring skills that they never thought they'd need and had no interest in acquiring, but suddenly they had them. Um, and a lot of them did absolutely brilliantly. Um, so I think although 2020 was a terrible year in so many ways, there was an aspect of the spirit of 2020, um, you know, the creativity, the inventiveness, the exploring new things that I think we do need to draw into the heart of what it is now to be an academic. Um, because I think that's, you know, going to be a big part of our future. Well, it's, um, it's a great note to finish on, John, and great for you as a leader of one of our great universities, but also as, a sec as the sector as a whole, to recognise that in the staff of Australian universities. I'm sure 
That's well, a very good message for, for, for us all. But for joining us today on HeadX, John, thanks very much for, for being with us. You're welcome, Martin. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating opportunity to talk with John Dewar about um, all that he's seen going on in the sector, um, his views around the complexities of, of how strategy will play out and how some simple things, as, as, as they seem to many, with regard to university responsibility for research commercialization and returning to campus is an awful lot more complex and involved and involves more players than, than many think. Um, and his observations about the different challenges of executing place-based strategies and going into the big competitions with global players in the online market were a real insight. Um, and I think the the closing messages there about, as we've we've been sharing, Carl and I, in so many of our comments in HeadX episodes in recent times, about the critically important part that culture plays in the development of universities and the implementation of strategy. Um, John had some very clear messages about how how important culture was and how we've we've got learnings in the tribute that he closed with of how Australian academics and Australian leaders and Australian universities in very difficult circumstances at the best of times but in the most challenging of times rose to the challenge kept things going we haven't had any major catastrophe catastrophes so far as he's described it um, much to learn from in this week's episode of Headaches. That's all for now.